This episode is brought to you by LMNT. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water, it's about water plus electrolytes. It makes sense, you lose both water and sodium when you sweat. Both need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches and energy dips. But most people only replace the water. Why? Well, because since the 1940s we've been told to drink 8 glasses of water per day, thirsty or not. Drinking beyond thirst is a bad idea. It dilutes blood electrolyte levels, especially sodium, which leads to headaches, low energy, cramps, confusion or even worse. This low sodium situation called hyponatremia is very common amongst endurance athletes, shift workers and those who work outside in the heat, leading to thermal stress. The solution isn't to stop drinking water, it's to drink water plus electrolytes. This is where LMNT comes in. Just mix this flavour, electrolyte drink mix, into your water bottle and you're good to go. It's got no sugar or artificial junk, just electrolytes. LMNT has your electrolyte needs covered. Former research biochemist Rob Wolf and Keto Gains founder Tyler Cartwright and Louis Villasener formulate LMNT to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium and magnesium for health, performance and energy. They also formulate LMNT to please your palate. Many different flavours such as orange salt, citrus salt, watermelon salt and many many more. Just head over to LMNT to find out. Or better still, go down to the show notes, click on the link, the sleep for performance link, to get um, to click on this and get your free promotional pack where you can get a taster pack and no questions asked refund policy as well. You don't even need to send it back. So check it out at LMNT in the show notes. Welcome back to the Sleep for Performance pet podcast. I was going to say pedcast. What? I can't even speak it so early in the morning. That's enough. <laughs> now, if you've just woken up and you're listening to this podcast or you're just about to go to bed, you might want to rethink what you're doing because we have the man here, the man, the myth, the legend, if he even exists, Brian Sharpless is here to talk about sleep paralysis and all things monster-like of the night. Brian, how are you doing? I'm good. It's good to be here. We're well, on quite a time difference, so it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I, I hope you can scare me today because I do love a good old horror movie. So yeah, I want to talk about some of your work here today. But Brian, before we get started, can you maybe give us a, a couple of minutes intro and background on uh, where you are today in the uh, other side of the planet and um, just a little bit about yourself in terms of a bit of a background or introduction? Uh, sure. I'm about 50 minutes outside of D.C., so uh, it's about 5.30 right now. A little bit about me. Well, I like to study strange things. I'm a clinical psychologist, so I have a private practice, spend time writing, spend time doing research, spend time doing a bit of teaching and public lecturing and going on pod trash with podcasts with strange Irishmen. Pod trash, you should call it, actually. That's a very much. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what you said, pod trash originally. I was like, well, that's actually a good name, pod trash for a podcast. There you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> There's enough shit to get spoken in this podcast. That it should be called pod trash. So, yeah. All right. So, well, let's let's get to it. <laughs> so, so Brian, you do you say private practice as a clinical psych, and then you do some research as well. So you obviously have a few different kind of roles that you combine. Are they all under the university umbrella, or do you do like a couple of days yourself, a couple of days for university, a couple of days for something else? Now I have uh, one university appointment at Goldsmiths University of London. I'm a visiting research fellow there, uh, but I'm physically located in the U.S. I go there a few times a year and I collaborate with uh, two of the graduate students and some of the faculty we publish together, do study strange things together. So yeah, I do part-time private practice. Uh, I like to publish. I'm really addicted to writing books. So a new book came out in October, which I was excited yep. about. And uh, 
Yeah, I don't like doing any one thing to the exclusion of others I've found through life. So I've tried to cobble together the best parts of academia without some of the more annoying parts. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm getting yeah, pretty I'm, close. Yeah, I'm the very same as well. I, I don't I don't like being told what to do by one group. So I like to, I like yeah, to diversify. Yeah, yeah. Get a, I, I was full-time academia for a long time. And yes. Stop. Yeah. It, it's not quite as much fun as it used to be, or maybe I'm just grumpier. Yeah. Yeah, I like the process of research, but the idea of working in an academic institution full time, no, no, no thanks. Mm. I've, I've never been interested in it. But the actual, the process of doing research is absolutely, I love it. It's brilliant. Oh, it's yeah. like some of the best tools you can have in your life for anything. So if you never researched again, it's just a great set of tools to, to have. I think really. So yeah. Yeah, even when you don't find what you want, it's still fascinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh -huh. So Brian, clinical psych. How, what interests you to clinical psychology? Were you always interested in psych or? Was there a weird, yeah. wonderful path to that? Uh, I, I think I was all, always interested in it. If I, I looked back at my high school yearbook, I actually said I wanted to be a clinical psychologist in high school. Really? Or not. Yeah. And so I went to university, studied psychology and philosophy, had a real big time, big trouble figuring out which one to do my doctorate in, but I eventually chose clinical psych because you can't do therapy with a doctorate in philosophy, but technically you can't yeah. do philosophy with a doctorate in clinical psychology. So I thought that was the pragmatic <laughs> way to go. <laughs> well, I, I recently, um, in the last couple of years, get into the middle ages of my life, you know, I have that existential crisis, like probably most guys. And I started thinking, maybe I'll go back and study philosophy, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do a master's or a graduate certificate or something like this. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to a guy who was a lecturer in philosophy at a very, you know, prestigious university here in Australia. And he said to me, these were the words he said to me, don't bother your arse going and study in philosophy. It's a waste of time. <laughs> it's a lot like, of fun. <laughs> I was like, well, he goes, listen, a guy of your age, he says, forget about it. Just get books. Who are you interested in? I said, probably Nietzsche. Buy everything from Nietzsche, read it. That's what you're better off doing. Then talk there to people go. about it. Or whatever he says, but don't go out to university and do a degree. It's the worst thing you could do. I thought it was quite interesting. There's a lot of unemployed philosophers, unfortunately. Yeah, I think I'm um, a big Nietzsche head. I actually just went to where he was born and where his final resting place is in Rocken, oh, really? Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, really we, interesting we, place. We interviewed a guy recently on Nietzsche on the Learning to Die podcast, and he was mm -hmm. a former Anglican minister who actually started reading Nietzsche and actually then just basically dropped out of being a priest in, in the Anglican mm. religion. And uh, he wrote this great book called Nietzsche's Renewal of Ancient Ethics. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. He sort of kind of went back to kind of, you know, this whole kind of Greek, the Greek ethics and how Nietzsche kind of leveraged off that because obviously uh, Nietzsche was a big fan of Heraclitus, right? So oh, yeah. he, he yeah. kind of drew it back to this. And um yeah, his name is, we interview so many people, I forget, Neil Durant. So Neil is a former mm. Anglican minister turned philosopher, and he's got this great book called uh, Nietzsche's Renewal of Ancient Ethics. So, yeah, a, a very interesting book. Um, Fun yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But uh, Nietzsche's a, a rabbit hole, I think. Yeah. Nietzsche's type of book you can, or stuff you can pick up on any day and read it and get something over. And then the next day you pick it up or a different time in your life and you get something completely different over. Yeah, I got to say the best book ever written on psychology was probably Twilight of the Idols. It's my favorite oh. Nietzsche book, and it is brilliant. A tour de force of depth psychology way before Freud. Right, I'll yeah, have to, really uh, stuff. I have it on the shelf. I haven't jumped into it yet because I've been on other stuff, and I tend to hop around <laughs> a lot. So that might be my my Christmas book. It, let, let, me ask you this, let me ask you this before we uh, jump back into Sleep World, but 
do you find Nietzsche to be depressing or invigorating and enlivening? Because some people uh, read the him and say, yeah, I'm the same. The latter, yeah. People say I even, read, I I even get enlivened a bit with Schopenhauer, who's even, even harder to read than Nietzsche in terms of <laughs> the possibility of, of making you a bit morose. But no, I, don't, I never had a problem with that. It's, you know, it's good to kind of, the idea that you're sort of trapped in a body and in a time that wasn't, of your own making and you sort of have to build your strengths up and create yourself like a work of art. That's really optimistic to me. Yeah. I'm the same. I, I don't understand. Yeah. I did a Nietzsche course, like a short one. It was like a more of a discussion course through university here in Sydney um, about two years ago. And it was like, you know, 10 Wednesdays for two hours. And some people are like, Oh, Nietzsche is very pessimistic and down in the world. I was like, when I read Nietzsche, I want to get outside, throw kettlebells around and run up and down and just, fucking do shit that's how i felt and i would like nearly like be like a building of energy in me it was just yeah it was probably the best self-help yeah. book i would ever recommend to anybody any Nietzsche stuff even just read two mm -hmm. passages and then go into the gym and just like <laughs> oh you just want to do things that, that you want to live life I'm, yeah you want to live life before you die yeah yeah anyway let's this is a this is a different podcast but anyway <laughs> so so brian um clinical psych and then you went you published this great book on sleep paralysis and then recently you published another book called monsters on the couch which we'll talk about as well but what was your interest in sleep paralysis how did you kind of get into this area because it's not an area that many people openly talk about in the sleep world really yeah I mean, it's getting it's a bit different now i think there are a few people researching it besides me for sure um i had a kind of circuitous route so i went into my graduate program and i was working with a guy who, who did a little work in sleep but he was primarily anxiety disorders researcher so i spent most of my time and my master's and my dissertation on anxiety research then i went on postdoc at university of pennsylvania which is in as in west philadelphia so where, where the Fresh Prince was from, <laughs> but it's a high population of African-Americans. And I was working on a panic disorder grant and some of the research at the time, which has turned out to be inaccurate, uh, believed that a sleep paralysis was significantly more likely to be found in African-Americans. It might actually be an African-American variant of panic disorder. So I figured, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here. So while I'm studying this, I, I cobbled together a clinical interview. I trained some graduate students and postdocs on uh, to reliability on the measure so we could accurately diagnose us. And then every single person that came into the study, we interviewed and we found out that sleep paralysis is A, not that uncommon in clinical populations and B, it's associated with some real clinical problems. In, in that sample, 45% of the people had clinically significant distress or clinically significant impairment just as a result of the sleep paralysis episodes. So this was either worrying them, they were afraid they were going crazy, they were afraid they were going to die, be permanently paralyzed, mm. um, or it really disrupted their, their days. And they would have conditioned fear responses to the bedroom or the bed. And so, yeah, for some people, it was not just a strange experience, but it was something that was legitimately interfering with their lives. So that was kind of interesting. and. Um, when I got my first faculty job, I, I kept publishing on it. They press released uh, one of my articles that got a bit of attention. And I started just getting flooded with all these really interesting stories of, uh, of people having sleep paralysis. And um, it's been interesting. And it's dovetailed into other strange parasomnias like exploding head syndrome. Yeah. I'm working a bit on sexomnia right now, which is another really interesting wild yeah. disorder that the public just, it's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, yeah. That one, the idea that you could have sex while you're sleeping and have no memory of it. 
So, um, yeah, I think it was a nice way for me to merge my interest in, in strange things. Cause when I was growing up, I was always reading voraciously about UFOs and abductions and monsters. And it's, it became a neat way to mix my interests with clinical psychology and horror and weird stuff. And even a little philosophy here and there. Yeah, no, it is. It's very interesting. And we'll talk a little bit more about the cultural implications or aspects of this as well. But Brian, for anybody listening who's like, well, what exactly is sleep paralysis? What would be the kind of your very um, layman's clinical version um, definition of what sleep paralysis is? Yeah, it's the experience of either going to bed or waking up and you find yourself completely unable to move. So you're not just feeling heavy, like you have weights on your limbs. You're not just feeling tired. You are completely atonic, but you know, you're not asleep. And most people have their eyes open and are able to look around the room. Okay, so you've got the paralysis with conscious awareness. But most people, at least 80%, also have dream activity going on while they're awake. So they're actively hallucinating. And the vast majority of the hallucinations are scary. We think it's because you're kind of already in this negative state because you can't move. You should be able to move when you're awake, right? And so you're, then you start seeing strange things. And this goes through a fairly reliable process as well. So when you achieve consciousness, you realize you can't move. You're looking around the room maybe, and then you sense that there's something in the room with you. It's called the sensed presence. Mm. And about, I think uh, 56% of people that have sleep paralysis have this. So it starts out like that. And then it could coalesce into you're actually seeing something. And then this figure, which is usually a malevolent entity, could be like a demon ghost shadow person vampire then it can interact with you and since it's an hallucination it can go through any sensory modality so you you can hear it you can see it you can touch it you could even taste it and there's oftentimes a sexual uh sort mm. of cast to some of these hallucinations as well that goes all the way people have been describing that since ancient greece and rome if you look back at beliefs about incubi and succubi in ancient rome these malevolent demons, the incubi were the male and the succubi are female, and they would have sex with you while you were sleeping, drain you, and they would eventually kill you from doing this too much. So that's where you get into sort of the cultural elements. But in a nutshell, yeah, for sleep paralysis, you just need to be paralyzed and at, at a period of sleep transition, consciously awake, and you may or may not have hallucinations. Brian, these experiences... Uh, tend to be more with younger people than older people um, and tend to be with people who have more sleep dead or sleep irregularity. Was that true from what I've been reading? Uh, yes, yes. So things that disrupt sleep are going to make it more likely. Um, so yeah, having insomnia, you can actually induce it in a sleep lab. Uh, a Japanese researcher named Takeuchi was able to do that through having people on EEG and, and poking them at certain points and have them enter this mixed state. When you get right down to it, it's just uh, conscious awareness mixed with REM sleep. In an REM sleep, um, a lot of things are going on, but you're paralyzed. So you don't act out your dreams and you're having dream mentation. That's the stage of sleep, mm -hmm. as I'm sure your listeners know, when you're most likely to have dreams and you're most likely to have the richest dream imagery. So why, why do you think, Brian, this is more of a like a negative experience, if you want to call it that, where it's a dark entity, someone sitting on them. It's it's very much when it's a sexual experience, it's like a, nearly like a forced sexual experience or like an assault or a rape where people have reported yeah. these. What, why, why isn't it like, you know, sort of like, I don't know, 
Ella's jumping around the room singing songs to you. Why is it such a negative experience? <laughs> well, I think you're you're primed to be a little bit afraid when you can't move. And so you've already got sort of a negative affect state starting once you achieve consciousness with the paralysis. And then what we think happens is your brain sort of tries to make sense of this and makes these malevolent figures. There are people who do enjoy sleep paralysis. Um, I did a study with some, some Czech colleagues of mine and a small percentage of people do have positive experiences of sleep paralysis. What they generally have are what are called vestibular motor hallucinations, which is the fancy term for your body is moving about without your volition. So these folks think they're flying or floating mm. and they can enjoy it. Um, and that's correlated uh, in the research study that I was talking about with openness to experience. So the personality trait of being open yeah, to yeah. experience is one of the big five. So that's kind of cool. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's but, fascinating. But the classic going back to, you know, even uh, Hippocrates, Pallas Algonida, Ernst Jones, who you and I were talking about before yeah. we began, the classic sleep paralysis experience is feeling pressure on your chest. Something is on top of you. Keep making it really hard for you to breathe, possibly throttling you or sexually assaulting you. And that is the classic definition of what was called the nightmare. So prior to sometime in the late 1800s or early 1900s nightmare did not mean just a scary dream it was associated with this um, sleep what we would now call sleep paralysis where you have an inability to move huge amounts of fear and this pressure on the chest making it hard to breathe so that's what a nightmare was for most of recorded history in the in the english and germanic languages the word the word nightmare does that come from like obviously the word night, I mean a night, but mare coming from like Mara or Mar, which is obviously used in Eastern philosophy, which is like around, I don't know, like the, I suppose the one from word, the devil or what's the, what's the etymology of that word? Is that, am I right? Yeah. Reading that? I've read some different things and I was wondering what you may have yeah. come across. There's a, there's a horse association, so mare. And it, uh -huh. if you look at some of the uh, early treatments for visitations from malevolent spirits, you'd use a horseshoe. And it was believed that that um, these malevolent entities could attack horses as well. Uh -huh. um, strangely, they're really weird connections. If you go down, a, you can go down a wormhole with this. But one of the ways you'd figure out where a vampire was located is you'd have a, a black horse being ridden by a virgin boy, and it would be able to lead you to where the vampire's grave was. <laughs> so there, all these strange connections um, with with demons and horses and and scary things at night. So, but yeah, the, the other um, part of the nightmare is the spirit Mara, which they made a movie about uh, a few years ago, which was, uh, you know, they were outright talking about sleep paralysis, but they switched the plot instead of a hallucination. This is a real evil entity that has the power to kill you after she toys with you for a while. Because Mara is used in Hinduism and Buddhism, isn't it? It's like the, it's like the devil, like kind of a devil spirit, if you want to call it that. Uh, could like be. I could be. Yeah, I haven't looked too much in the etymologies of that, but yeah. There's a new. There's a new show. Well, relatively new, the last five to ten years. Um, I think it's a CBS show. Evil. They've got sleep paralysis now. Have you seen that show? Mm -mm. Yeah, um, I've spent the past year just watching horror movies for that new book. So, oh great, we'll I talk about that on well. a lot of TV. We'll talk, we'll, TV. Talk, we'll talk about that as well. <laughs> I love getting this shit frightened down me by horror movies, and I don't know why. Oh yeah, um, it's it's like eating chilies. Like you know, it's bad for you, but you just keep doing it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's called Evil. And uh, there's a guy that's a Catholic priest in that, but he's having trouble with his faith. 
and he's working with this detective, but she gets visited in the night like a kind of a, you know, like a succubus type a character or incubus type character. Um, yeah, who comes to her in her sleep. So it's kind of like a modern Man. version of that. And I, I thought it's like kind of a version of that sleep paralysis. So yeah, if anybody watches that show, that's probably what that is. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. There's a really good documentary called The Nightmare uh, directed by Rodney Asher came out in 2015. Okay. It is, it's a, it's a hard documentary where they follow eight people that have sleep paralysis. Oh. They use Hollywood movie magic to recreate their hallucinations. And then they talk to them about it. And what's wild. Um, and you, when you watch the movie, you might think that this is kind of fake and this is fiction, but these folks know about sleep paralysis. They, they, yeah, they yeah. researched, they talked about it, but when you get right down to it, a good chunk of them still believe something supernatural is going on. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is like that we're talking about the kind of scientific, you know, here's the rational part of it, you know, and we could talk yeah. about that for anything like, you know, for anxiety, for fear of snakes, whatever It's like, Oh, this is happening. Or, you know, um, sure. but, for, for a lot of people, they're like, you know, I don't care what you say either, Brian, about like this transitionary state between REM and non-REM and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I see a demon in my room and I know what's yeah. real and what's not real. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And God love you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. You don't have <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, the, yeah. so the, the other side of that coin, Brian, might be like, what about if there is really a demon and we're just seeing the physiological signs of it on our side, if you want to call it that? It's possible, but um, I don't know why demons would go away mm -hmm. if you take a low dose of Prozac. I don't know how you could, uh, how Professor Takeuchi could make a demon come in the sleep wrap through touching you. Because the demons respect the scientific process, Brian. Come on, ah, we all know this. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, and if, if a doctor has prescribed you Prozac, the demon <laughs> would respect that. <laughs> <laughs> we we can we can go through that, talk about philosophy of science and ad hoc arguments too. <laughs> but, but, it is, but it is interesting though your the personality traits like behind it. So you said a yeah. moment ago that the positive experiences are people have more an open um you know positivity trait uh, an open an open trait um from the personality trait sorry an open style. But what would what would be the style of the uh, the personality style? I suppose you want to call it that for the people who are having very negative experiences. Um, there there have been very few differences found even between people that have sleep paralysis and people who don't. So in in the study I was talking about, it was a group of exclusively sleep paralysis. Yeah folks. So all there weren't any controls. And so the people that were more open to experiences, the big five personality trait were more likely to have the positive, but there's no trait. They've uh, early studies gave the MMPI, which is a big measure of personality and pathology to people with sleep paralysis, people that didn't have sleep paralysis and they didn't find much, if anything, certainly nothing replicable that I've seen. And is there any other sort of, um, let's say, socioeconomic factors or other historical factors that might predispose somebody to having sleep paralysis? I'm thinking maybe, you know, childhood trauma, um, being having PTSD, you know, like those military type That's activity when you're young, all those type of things bring this on. Oh, yeah. If you really want to get terrified, there have been a, a few case studies out there of, uh, for instance, Devin Hinton, who's a researcher at Harvard, he did a lot of work with the Khmer, with, I'm sorry, the Hmong population who fled after the Vietnam War. Yep. And they were essentially uh, victims of genocide by the Khmer Rouge. This so is people, the sons, isn't it? The sudden yeah. unexpected death syndrome. 
Uh, it, that yeah that's on the west coast this is more more recent in the east coast but yeah oh, so so these folks they would actually during their sleep paralysis um hallucinations they would see figures in Khmer Rouge uniforms I've worked with women who uh, were raped and they when they have sleep paralysis episodes will hallucinate their rapists I mean Jesus. what's more terrifying than being completely prone in bed or, or or on your back or on your stomach you can't move and you can see the person who sexually assaulted you so um you can work real people and real experiences into sleep paralysis hallucinations um so yeah it's it's yeah that's nightmare fuel right there yeah so, yeah a history of trauma is a big one sleep disturbances um there's some mixed experience in research with alcohol so uh alcohol can uh, suppress REM sleep. And then you get what's called a rebound effect later yep. on in the night, which could make you more likely to have uh, one of these strange REM blips, sleep paralysis. And um, yeah, there's a number of things that are, are associated with sleep paralysis, anxiety, depression, uh, panic disorder has been associated with it. Death anxiety, which you and I were emailing about yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, there was one study or two on that. Um, what's called anxiety sensitivity, which is the where you are prone to experience normal anxiety sensations in a catastrophic manner. That seems to be associated with it as well. And you can kind of see how that might make sense with sleep paralysis, especially if you wake up paralyzed. You're going to be really afraid if you have high anxiety sensitivity. Yeah. Yeah. We just recently presented some data. I think I sent it to you at the Australasian Sleep Association, just some prelim data on a study we've been doing. We've got about 400 people looking at dreams and death anxiety and dreams, nightmares, death anxiety, and any spiritual sort of connection. And, you know, kind of similar to what's happening in the Western world, spirituality or religion, religious practices are way down. So there was no real correlation between those, but that was interesting of itself. But disturbing dreams or nightmares basically was, was, was correlated with poor sleep quality, which is, other researchers have said this as well, like Mark Somm in, in South Africa have said, basically, you know, asking someone about sleep quality would be, um, or asking about their dreams would be an indication of sleep quality. And we kind of found the same thing as well. So it's interesting as well <clears throat> that, that that can positively or negatively affect the the type of dream that, that the person is having. Sure, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> I think I've just swallowed my tongue. <laughs> um. So you were talking there a little bit about the um people in around um in the in the middle in the Middle East, I was gonna say in Southeast Asia. This other one yeah. that's here as well, I just said a minute ago, the sudden unexpected unexpected near um nocturnal death syndrome. Sons, yeah. In the is it the Lao and Hawaiian is how is that pronounce it? Uh, yeah, the from folks from Laos. Yeah. Lao, yeah. So the, yeah. this is a crazy one as well, where people like uh, yeah, yeah. even the World yeah. Health Organization or the CDC can't explain what's happening. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it might relate to sleep paralysis? Yeah. So this was one of the inspirations for a nightmare on Elm Street. So uh, West Craven. Oh, really? Uh, yep. Yep. West Craven um, was in California, and in the late seventies, there was a newspaper article about the Hmong, uh, several recent immigrants. Uh, the, in the Hmong community in Orange County, California, had died in their sleep. The very first one, his name was Lee Dow. He was like a 30-year-old medic. Picture of health, nothing wrong with him. And since he was a medic, presumably he knew more about the human body and about health and sickness than most of us. And so he just ended work one day and went to sleep like any end of the day and never woke up. They, they did an autopsy on him and um, they found really nothing. 
they couldn't figure out what killed this young man. And that was the start. And uh, several other young Hmong men, all young, under 30, usually, uh, recent immigrants. So they were in America for, uh, I believe the mean was 17 months or something like that. And picture health. And they just died suddenly. And so some of their family members reported strange things happening. They they reported, some of them reported screaming, hearing screaming. Others reported that they were terrified of going to sleep. Um, One gentleman whose son died found a coffee maker that the son had been keeping secretly in his closet because he wanted to stay awake. And so it seemed like they were doing all these things like in A Nightmare on Elm Street like you saw Nancy doing to try and stay up so that they didn't have the scary experience. Wes Craven nicked those from these, (laughs) these real life tragedies. Yeah. And what they found was really nothing. They, they were looking and these people seemingly died for no reason. The only connection was they were, they were Southeast Asians. They were primarily men and young and recent immigrants. So as research progressed, they started developing different hypotheses. They started going, doing, you know, bare bones, basic detective work, interviewing family members, trying to figure out what was going on. They found some weird things. So um, people would report having cyanosis, which is um, a lack of blood flow that causes your skin to turn blue. They would report that in the weeks following the event. They would report experiences that seem very similar to what I described as sleep paralysis. Some people would, would, would scream in terror as they were going to sleep. Um, so they found all these weird signs and symptoms, uh, but they couldn't quite make sense of it. Then in the 80s, their two brothers uh, with the last name Brugada identified a rare heart condition. It's an electrical conduction problem in the heart that later bore their name called Brugada syndrome. And this is a terrifying thing, but you could, unless you, you could be in a cardiologist's office going under an EKG. And unless the cardiologist knew they wanted to look for Brugada, they could completely miss it from my understanding. I'm not a cardiologist, but this is what I've, I've read. But I've seen um, one on TV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it will just snuff you out like that. It's an electrical conduction problem of the heart. And so what they thought for a while, looking at the symptoms, it seemed to go along with a combination of Brugada and some strange sleep experience going on, like either a night tear, sleep paralysis, uh, traditional nightmare, because the reports didn't quite go together. But um, later research that's just come out in the past five years casts a bit of question that it's just Brugada. So mm-hmm. you need something that's going to screw with your heart. You need some triggering event like a, a sleep paralysis episode or a night tear, something that's going to raise your activity level and potentially trigger uh, this, this deadly response. But it's still not completely understood today. Um, and when you, if you look at the demographics of who dies from Brigada, young Asian men. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. White guys no, can get it too. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that part about it at all. That's, that's really interesting, yeah. Yeah. But it shows the genius of Wes Craven. He could take this uh, real life idea and sort of add some storytelling magic and create Freddy Krueger, which strangely enough has a, a, a connection with some of the uh, demons in Hmong uh, mythology. There's really? a figure called the Da Cho who lives in underground caverns, like Freddy had his boiler yeah, room, yeah. is associated with fire. And just like Freddy, he wouldn't kill you the first time. 
he would he would come to you and if you were a good mong what you would do is you would try to uh call and have one of your ancestor spirits help you or find a shaman to make a magical um uh, ring or necklace or amulet for you with three uh types of metal all wound together to protect you from it and um if you didn't do that like you couldn't in orange county california it's pretty hard to find a shaman in the 70s i'm guessing uh, and the Dacho could kill you. Just like Freddy, he would visit you and he didn't kill you right away. It was second or third visit. I'm smiling here because I remember like in the 80s watching those movies as a kid. Uh -huh, like, uh -huh. yeah, my parents like, do not watch those movies. They've got a friend's house. You're like, sit and watch <laughs> like Nightmare Down the Street. Yeah. I actually mm -hmm. thought even then they were quite funny. I, what's, what's funny though is like people used to be scared shitless of watching them. And then it was the whole debate, which was scarier, the first one, the second one or the third one. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't do not know, this is where Johnny Depp became famous, by the way. Mm -hmm. So for anybody who doesn't know, he was His a young very Johnny first Depp. Movie. Very first movie. Yeah, <laughs> young Johnny Depp. But um, if you watched him now, they're just laughable. They're just, they're so <laughs> funny. And you think to yourself, how was that even a bit crazy, a bit funny, you know, or a bit, a bit, a bit scary because they're so funny. But I remember it's like, so you know, funny, yeah. people singing those songs at school. One, two, better lock yours. People were like, shut up. You're frightening the shit out of me at school. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> so, it also is. goes to show how good of a freaking actor Robert Englund was. Who could make a child killer charming? <laughs> yeah. That's what he... Freddy Krueger was. He was a child murderer. Rumored in the movie, it's, it, it's implied <laughs> he's even a pedophile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he it's... makes him charming. They're freaking light lunch boxes and there's toast. There are Freddy Krueger toasters, Ian. Really? You can buy, yes. Yeah. You can buy beer koozies. <laughs> Freddy Krueger. It's crazy. Good. He was that actor. That same actor was in another great sci-fi show of the late 80s, early 90s. Well, I think it was more late 80s. V. v. Remember mm -hmm. V? Man, oh, I course. love that show. That, that yeah. show. I watched that again during COVID in the lockdowns and I was like, it's really bad. Like when you look at it now, it's really bad, like sort of, um, you know, uh, effects and so on. But geez, that was such a good show at the time. And when you think about it now, when I'm older, you think about how much of it was sort of related back to the Nazi thing as well. Like the symbol, mm -hmm. the symbol, um, symbols that were used. And yeah, it was, oh, it was yeah. really, really interesting show. That original V is really good. I know, I think they did a remake, which I didn't like. I watched only two episodes, but no, the original V was really good. Oh, it's great. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and uh, it had the reptilian element too, which yeah, is yeah. pretty popular in David <laughs> David Icke circles these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. People say Barack Obama is like a reptilian, all this, and Hillary Clinton, the Queen, and Justin Bieber, oh, yeah. who else? Um, Beyonce, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of reptilians out there ruling the world. Yeah, uh, maybe it should, that could be a book, Brian, the philosophy of V. Because um, when I watched that, I thought to myself, well, in some ways, like you just are food for, like you know, you you just. Are, you are food for someone else to deliver their objective you know you just work along and make money and yeah you can start drawing lots of parallels there to the government and tax money and all that but anyway let's not get down that rabbit hole uh, okay we we were talking there a little bit about uh, different cultures uh, brian now when we look at sleep paralysis across many different cultures that have different interpretations of it what comes to mind is a newfoundland like the hag um i think it's the kokma in the caribbean Mm -hmm. um, and basically across nearly every country in the world, there's going to be something about this sleep paralysis. And oh, another yeah. little kind of thing on the back of this is, I remember in about maybe 2004 or five, I was living in the north northwest of, of Western Australia. So in a remote desert area. And we went out doing, spending some time with um, local Aboriginal people where we camped out. Mm -hmm. And they actually said to us, like, when you sleep out in the land at nighttime, like people come and sort of, 
you know, will come and touch you in the night and they'll brush off your face and they'll they'll play with you and it's that's kind of spirit element. Um mm. it's which, not the emus. No, it's not the emus. No, it's not. Okay. And and there's a I've been looking as well. I've got a friend that works in the Irish folklore department at University College Dublin, uh, Johnny Dillon. And I've been looking a little bit at some of the archives on this online about in the Irish culture as well. And and the Irish myth um mythology culture um has all this sort of thing with like what we call the theories. And the theories are not to be confused with mm. modern day kind of theories on Disney. They're they're like yeah. this kind of other world, this parallel yeah, they're world. They're scary. Happen, they're scary. That happens at nighttime. Yeah. And people think, oh, this is all like beautiful fairy tales. Like fairies in Ireland, like scared the shit out of you. And I have to admit, there's certain things I won't do in Ireland still because of this. I just, as <laughs> even as a scientist. Don't you know, mess wife, with any fairy stones. Yeah, my wife would be like, oh, would you go into a fairy ring? Nah, no. But you're like, you're a scientist. Like, what, what? And she just laughs at me. I'm like, oh, I just wouldn't fuck with it. I would just, I'd rather not do it, right? So I'm not going to take a chance. But but why do we see this kind of manifesting um, a lot of these sleep paralysis type things or nightmares manifesting into folklore? How do, um, sorry, mythology, not folklore. How does this kind of, how does it happen and why does it happen, do you think? Well, it's it's hard to answer that with a lot of certainty, but, you know, we first, we've got the night element, right? So humans are crap at night. Our senses aren't that good. <laughs> yeah. We're scared. We're never as vulnerable when we sleep. So then we have, again, the, this strange anomalous blip in our sleep cycle where we have sleep and REM going together and we wake up, we're paralyzed. We're seeing scary things. And where are we going to get this material for these scary things? Obviously, there's going to be a personal element, but there's going to be a cultural element too. So if you live in a demon haunted world, you're going to see demons. If you live in, in San Lucia, you're going to see the Kokma, which is really terrifying. Do you know what the, the Kokma actually is? No, I don't. I don't know much about it's, it. I just read it. It's yeah, it's the spirit of an unbaptized infant who's d oh. dead, who comes and strangles you at night. Yeah, that's some dark stuff. That's really dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's even oh, hit me it, shut up for a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in Zanzibar, you've got the Popa Bawa, which is a giant black bat that comes out of the jungle and sexually assaults only men. And he's sadistic. What he does after he sexually assaults you, he makes you tell everybody else you were sexually assaulted or he'll come back and do it again. So again, in Zanzibar, yeah. you've, you see bats all over the place. You see certain forms, uh, certain animals over others. And so there's that cultural element. So uh, for my money and a lot of other researchers' money, uh, the whole idea of alien abduction is uh is interesting if you think about it in a sleep paralysis context it might be our best naturalistic explanation for why people believe they were abducted by aliens um so i, I mean people who believe that their studies done they're not more likely to have major mental health disorders than people who don't believe they're abducted mm. by aliens they're not crazy so how do we make sense of it well if you organize in a 20th or 21st century fashion this scary experience, you might see a technologically advanced alien as opposed to a demon or a vampire or a ghost or a fairy. Fairies abducted people too, as you know. Yeah, yeah. The fairies can take you off. Like if you make deals with them, like, or you do something with them, they can take you off into their into their underworld, if you want to call it that. Yeah. So yeah, there's many folklore, um, or keeps saying folklore, which is really mythology. There's many stories about this. In Ireland, there's a great guy online called Eddie Lenehan. He's a shaniki, which means storyteller in Ireland. If anybody looks up him, he's got some great stories about the whole Irish mythology and the, and the fairy culture and what goes on about, you know, fairies playing games at nighttime, like Irish games, and then people coming across them and 
chatting away to them and next minute all of a sudden playing a game with them and then getting taken away. And the theories will actually present themselves as human form. So they can actually trick yeah. you into going into their world. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, which was actually one of Sean Connery's very first movies, made by Walt Disney, which to me is one of the most terrifying movies ever. And even when I watch it today, Brian, I'm scared shitless, is Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Have you seen this? No. Oh, With Sean Connery? No. Sean Connery. How did I miss that? Yeah, That's I think amazing. we made, I want to say, um, I want to say 1956, I want to okay. say. Um, wow, that's early. Yeah, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, um, 1959. Um, wow. Yeah. These fairies so, even mess with Sean Connery, a young Sean Connery. They don't, yeah, they don't, I, they don't muck about. This has got some, to me, this is this has kept me more awake as a young kid because um, used to be on TV and because it's a Disney movie, this kept me more awake than Nightmare on Elm Street. There's scenes in this where headless horsemen, the fairy, the fairies and the leprechauns taking people away. There's some really dark stuff in this, like some really band the banshees in this, like all of these Ooh. things as well. So yeah, I'm not sure if you've dug much into that sort of Irish um, mythology about banshees and all this stuff as well. But A this stuff, bit. being an Irish person growing up, scared me to death. It, so, it's yeah. all the right or wrong notes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, it, it terrified me, Darby O'Gill. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm getting afraid now. Even just looking you're, at you're, it, yeah. yeah, you're looking a little, a little, I'm just a little looking off at right now. Ian. I just, I just, uh, I just googled that. There's like a scene playing there, and I was like, "Well, I'm going to turn that off." It's starting to frighten me. Yeah, but but Brian, <laughs> you you went into this into this area as well, like this kind of monsters area as well in your recent book, which just just came out. I think last month was it? Yeah, um, it, it came out October third, so it's yeah. just got out. Yeah, I, when when we were conversing on email, I ordered it, but. Sometimes to me to get a book here outside of Australia it takes about six months, um, so it can be on its way. But Monsters on the Couch, the real psychological disorder behind your favorite horror movies. So, um, this this is interesting because in some ways, like I was saying about, it's like eating the chili. You know, it's going to make you feel sick maybe, but you keep doing it. <laughs> Why are we as humans obsessed with this kind of relationship with horror movies and the night and like you know timeless classics like Dracula and so on? Why do we love this? Yeah, well, we like to be scared. If you're scared in a controlled, safe place, it's fun. I always tell people, if if you're, you really want to make a great first impression on a date, take them to a horror movie or go on a roller coaster, go cliff diving, have some shared scary experience together, and you will be more likely to get a return engagement. <laughs> There's something fun about being scared. And, uh, you know, it's one of those, it's our primary emotion. And in our technologically advanced society where we're fairly safe, we don't have to worry about getting killed by short-faced bears all that often, you know, we can kind of uh, enjoy a little bit of that, 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 that scary experience, again, in a safe way. Do, do, we, do we rather read horror or do we rather watch horror or listen to it? What, what's our preference uh, as humans? Uh, I, I think that's probably personal. I, I yeah. like to uh, I like to read, but I also like to see crazy zombies trailing viscera and gore in their wake. <laughs> uh, so are you not sick of the, Are you not sick of the zombie stuff lately? It seems to be in everything. Yeah, it, it 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 goes in waves. But uh, here's here's a weird factoid: there have been more zombie films made since nine eleven than all previous years combined. Isn't that really? interesting? Mm-hmm. Why do, why do you think that is? Is it more likely that we will have, have zombies than anything no, else? I have no idea. I have no idea. It's an intriguing observation, though. Could so be a spurious correlation, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think people just said, oh, look how much money the Walking Dead's making. Let's get in on that deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, what's your favorite horror um book of all time? Horror book of all yeah. time. Jeez. Uh probably that'd have to be The Exorcist, I think. The Exorcist, yeah. That was banned yeah. in Ireland for a long time. Yeah, it probably should have been. No. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> it's great fun. The Exorcist, yeah. Yeah. And I, a great I, movie, I, of course. Oh yeah, very good movie. I haven't read much um horror fiction, but when I read Dracula, I couldn't I was so surprised I waited so long to read it. Mm-hmm. It's probably independent of being horror. It's one of the best written books I've ever read. Yeah. I just thought it was absolutely fat, fantastic. I ended up reading um, a biography on Bram Stoker after it as well. And I did a mm-hmm. I did a tour He's in a weird guy. Oh man, such such a weird and interesting dude. I did it. You talk about um going on dates. I was in Ireland in 2018. I was at a conference in Germany. I went over to no, was it 2016? <clears throat> 2016, 17. I went to Ireland and then my wife was flying in from Australia and we were going to go to Spain for a while. And I had like one or two nights free in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And I was just walking around and I was outside the general post office, which is right in the middle of Dublin city. And there was a bus pulled up and it was like something like horror tours or something. And it was run by the Dublin city bus people. And there was a guy standing outside it with like fangs in his mouth. And I said, what's this? And he goes, oh, it's like a horror <laughs> tour. We bring tourists on it. And I was like, oh, right. I said, when's it go? He goes, every night. I said, what, where do you go? And he was saying all the places. I was like, geez, I've never even heard of it. I said, I said, but I haven't been home like in 10 years. I said, how do you book on it? And he goes, oh, you have to go online. I said, oh, all right. I said, uh, I'll tell you what, how about I slip you some money and he just let me go on the bus. Mm-hmm. And he just looked around to the bus driver. Well, this lad slips it. And I said, he goes, yeah. So I got on the bus anyway, I got on the tour. Absolutely brilliant. But we ended up in Dublin Castle at nighttime and we actually went to the Bram Stoker's office where he wrote Dracula oh, and wow. to bring it down underneath. And so underneath Bram Stoker's um, office where I was in Dublin Castle, mm-hmm. there's actually um, bones there from the Viking invasion. So they reckon that some of this may have influenced him in writing Dracula. And then they also spoke about how the word Dracula comes from the Irish word meaning Druk Ula, which means bad blood. Interesting. Yeah, so they talk all about the... Um, Kind Not of influences of Dracula. Yeah. So like the, the whole there was a Irish, double meaning. Interesting. Yeah. And then it was obviously Vlad the Impaler was a part of mm-hmm. it. Like that influenced there was the whole kind yeah. of theory. His stuff name was Dracula because his his father was Vlad Dracul the second. So he was the son of Dracul, so he was Dracula. Ah. Yeah. So that, that sounds like there's a double meaning there. Bad Could be, yeah. There was all these seconds. things anyway, but yeah. it was it was it was very interesting. But there's a book on Bram Stoker, um, which is very interesting, spoke about how we like sort of you know, his whole growing up came from, you yeah. know, it was Anglo-Irish and came from a bit of money and all that. But anyway, very interesting as a side note, but um, very, wow. very interesting book. Have you Dracula seen the Tours recent- of Dublin and Phil Lynott statues? I got to go there. <laughs> the boys are back in town. Gary Moore, forget it. Pretty pretty good. And the guy that was doing it was actually, was actually an actor as well. I was doing the tour. Um the tour guide. He actually been on a few TV shows in Ireland as well because I'd seen him afterwards. But yeah, I would highly recommend it. Um, did, have you seen the recent speaking of Dracula? Have you seen the recent? Um, well, a few years now. Um, Netflix show on Dracula, which I thought was probably the most truest to the book, which had like three episodes, which was like the three phases of the book, from like Transylvania being on the boat and then in the UK. Did I? I don't think I saw that. No, it was very, a Netflix very... three parter. No. Mm. Very, I like the uh, I like the couple of Dracula though with Gary Oldman. That was oh one. yeah, he was yeah. he was he was scary in that. Yeah, <laughs> he was so good. The way he just flowed in. Yeah, He's like oh, oh God. <laughs> he, he might have just uh, acted a little better than Keanu. <laughs> 
Gary Oldman in that and Gary Oldman <laughs> in the movie Leon or The Professional. Have you yes. seen that? Of, yeah, yeah. When oh, he's yeah. in that, when he's doing the drugs and he's like... Doing like the poppers or whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's two of Gary Oldman's best experiences, yeah. And then you see him in he's Harry Potter. He's my favorite actor. He is my favorite actor. Yeah. He's got a recent show out, um, an English one called Slow Horses on Apple. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. No. He's Slow he's, a, he's like a MI5. It's kind of a comedy drama, I would say. They're on, <laughs> on the third season of it. They're like a bunch okay. of MI5 agents that are just basically fuck-ups and <laughs> to put them into this other like area. It calls um, Slough House, and he's like their leader, but he's really filthy and he's an alcoholic and, and it's just yeah, it's very wow, good. I wonder to watch. if I can get that in the states. I will slow try. slow horses. It's on Apple TV, so I'm sure it okay. must be on Apple. It'd be worth doing like you know a free month just and then it's sure, half sure. a true season three, so we weren't watching that. Yeah. yeah, he's a great Winston Churchill too. Oh, where did he? What? When did he play Winston Churchill? Was that in the movie the Darkest Night? The Darkest Night. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he was. Ah. Great. Tune in next week to Ian and, Ian and Brian's movie fix. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I've got to come back on this Monsters on the Couch. So um, so you said the the real psychological disorders behind your favorite horror movies is the title of the book. So yes. Brian, tell, tell us a little bit about this book and, and, and sort of what you're getting at with this. And what your, what's your objective of the book? What are you unpacking? Yeah. There? Well, like we talked about with sleep paralysis, that it, that's been worked into at least nine horror movies. Okay, so they take the real concept of sleep paralysis and some most of the time they'll even talk about it, but they'll make it real, they'll make it scary, they'll make it a real mortal threat to your existence and use it as a hard plot. So I started wondering, okay, let's look at other connections. So some of them I've known for a while. So there is a real life um, syndrome uh, associated with vampirism where people feel uh, sexual feelings, feelings of euphoria from drinking human blood. We call that clinical vampirism or Renfield syndrome after the character from Dracula, who wasn't a real vampire, but he was kind of uh, a pseudo vampire. So he's, he's trying to drink cat's bloods and he eventually attacks the poor doctor in the insane asylum that he's stupid, stupefied. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We've also got a corresponding condition for werewolves. We call it clinical lycanthropy. And there are documented real life cases of people who believe they transform into animals and then take on their qualities. But what's wild is they're not all wolves. Dogs are the number one category followed by wolves. And then you've got a, a cat's uh, the, the, there's a condition called clinical boanthropy, which is where you believe that you're a cow. And there is, I swear to God, a case of clinical wear gerbilry. A man in the U S believed he turned into a gerbil and he would, um, crawl under furniture. He would sleep under furniture. His nose would actually twitch like little cute rodent noses twitch. Um, and these people, they are completely in, insensible. They don't talk. And it can last for hours. It could last for decades. What's wild is you can actually treat this, even though it's a fairly rare condition. Um, a buddy of mine in the Netherlands did a, did a study of all the cases from 1852 to the present. He found 56, but there have been more since then. So not a glaring public health threat, but these, these folks are out there and they're in wards. So that's clinical lycanthropy. Then uh, for zombies, which we love, uh, you have Cotard syndrome. And this is kind of a sad disorder, but this is a condition where you really believe that you're dead. You might believe your organs are rotting from the inside. You might be able to feel your organs rotting. You have a lot of nihilistic ideas. You might believe that you are in hell right now. And even though you believe that you're dead, these folks are at a massively high risk of committing suicide. 
which you wow. wonder, well, how the hell could that be? Why would an immortal being kill themselves? Well, this is assuming you have sort of consensual reality testing, meaning you think like most people do, where something cannot be and not be at the same time. But people that have Cotard syndrome, they usually have other thought disturbances. So it could make perfect sense that they're dead, but they need to kill themselves. Jesus. Yeah, so that's um, that's zombies. And then if you get into some more modern movies, we already talked about A Nightmare on Elm Street, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. There are, is a condition called Capgra syndrome, which you believe that the important people in your life have been replaced with identical looking yet inferior duplicates. So um, you, you were talking about your wife. So one day, if you had Capgra syndrome, you would think, well, that she looks like my wife but she doesn't love me the same way. She can't, uh, she's not as much fun on vacation as she usually is. And you might believe not only that, but she actually might've kidnapped your real wife and is keeping you from her. So this is a shockingly common condition. It is found, what would, what percentage of people with Alzheimer's do you think would have this? Just take a guess. <laughs> I just wanted to say for the record as well, that I didn't prime Brian to say this. This is Brian's complete hypothetical situation here. I didn't say this about my <laughs> wife. No wedding is being construed or used against me in any court of law or any shape or fashion. What percentage of Alzheimer's people would have that? Which is a sad, a sad, common condition. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, it's interesting because my wife's uncle has this at the moment, Alzheimer's dementia, and he didn't recognize his partner recently. I'm mm. going to say maybe 10%. Yeah, 7 to 10% of, of patients with Alzheimer's have had this, will have this. In, if you have dementia with Lewy bodies, 20%. Well, that's so what he has dementia. Five, so, that's exactly what he has. Yeah. Oh, he has. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So anybody that works with geriatric populations, you really got to be on the lookout for this because uh, unlike some of the other conditions, this has a, a, a potential for other directed violence. So in about 30% of cases, you will see some violence. Um, and I think 4% of cases, you actually see homicide. Um, but if you think about it, that's, that's shocking, right? But mm. then think about it a little deeper. Why isn't that higher? How, how are six, over 60% of people who sincerely believe that their, their loved ones were replaced, how are they able to live in relative peace with, with somebody who could be taking their, could yeah, have been yeah. the one that took their loved ones? But, uh, because again, you've got other general thought disturbances going on that, that might thankfully make it less likely that they're going to act violently. But yeah, it's, it's really sad to see, not only for the person with Capra, but for the loved one. Because could you imagine? I mean, you have you you have to take care of them. Mm. They can't take care of themselves, but they yeah, yeah. they accuse you of being a phony. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I didn't want to bring down the show. We can go back to fairies, but no, 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 no. That's, this <laughs> and is, then the I, last, I, you're, you're getting me excited for the book, which is on the way. That's that's the thing. I'm yeah. just thinking about like I, the I, things like this that blow my mind where I didn't even consider it. Like it's great yeah. to talk about things you have a shared interest in, but when you have, but you get hit with something you've never even considered, it's just. Yeah, yeah, to me, that's brilliant. Like, just a completely railroad you, what you've done. It, yeah. Just, just changing the topic a little bit. I would guess, I don't, I've only known you for about an hour now, but I, I bet you like the movie The Thing, don't you? Kurt Russell? Oh, yeah, John yeah, John yeah, Carpenter's yeah. film? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's a long time so since that, I've seen it, yeah. yeah. There is a disorder that's similar to that. It's called the Fregoli syndrome. That's where you have uh, one entity 
that takes the place of other entities. So your wife could be this entity and your brother could be this entity. I could be this entity tormenting you. Yeah. Um, so if you look at the plot of the thing, or if you take the plot of the thing and make it a sexually transmitted disease, you have the plot of it follows the horror movie from, I think 2015, which is brilliant. And if, if you're, uh, if your audience wants to watch a really fun, smart horror movie, it follows, but this one girl is being, uh, followed by one entity that takes the shape of other people in her life and random strangers. And if she doesn't get away from it, it kills her. And it was sexually transmitted to her from in the back of a car in Detroit from a guy who had it. And he told her, you have to sleep with somebody else to get it rid of, to get rid of it for you. But if it kills that person, you give it to, it comes back and gets you. So it goes all the way back as a chain. So you have to, I, I'm, starting, I'm starting to get more worried about the people who write these movies, not the people who actually <laughs> <laughs> like, what is going on in your head that you are writing this sort of weird shit. That's what I'm mm-hmm, starting to think uh-huh. about now. It's a good yeah. movie. <laughs> we're, 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 record, the- we're recording this the week before Christmas. I was talking to my wife last night about what we're going to watch you know, all the Christmas movies, you know, what meta, what constitute a Christmas movie? I was like, die hard. She's like, we're not watching that. We're watching Love Actually. But now I'm going to be saying to her tonight, we're watching The Thing. We're watching It Follows. We're watching. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and then the last two chapters cover the light heartening topics of uh, cannibalism and necrophilia. Right. Happy Christmas, everybody. Yes. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah. But they're, they're uh, necrophilia. It, I think it's in more comedies movies than horror movies it was in clerks it was in weekend at bernie's where you have people in in comedy films sleeping with corpses and they don't even know they're sleeping with corpses yeah but it's so to, to me like it's nearly so absurd that you would have to like like you know laugh at it because it's i can't even yeah. imagine that like for real like yeah. Uh, yeah 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 and the limits of rigor mortis of course <laughs> on that note <laughs> the, the, <laughs> Jesus Christ <laughs> oh Brian you might have a weirder sense of humor than I do um, <laughs> so the, um, the other thing I was going to ask here now if people are kind of somewhat obsessed or into horror fiction um, as opposed to horror non-fiction well right. it is horror non-fiction I suppose you start reading yeah. like or listening to true crime and stuff like that and some of the stuff exactly. that goes on there and um, if people are into this, does that make them more susceptible to nightmares? Does it kind of manifest in their dreams? Because we, you know, when we look at dream research, these things can be basically, you know, processing of what's happened during the day, mm-hmm, short-term mm-hmm. stuff and all that. Does that make them more predis- uh, predisposed to having these nightmares? So people that come every three or ten years of practice have lots of nightmares. Do you say, right, well, stop watching Freddy Krueger and Dracula and watch, yeah, I don't know, Dawson's that's Creek. That's an interesting question. <laughs> well, that's scary for other reasons. Yeah, I know. But, um... I, I haven't seen any research on that. I would guess that horror fans, it doesn't affect them that much. Like I hear from my non-horror fan friends, when they watch horror movies, they will report having scary dreams. But the friends of mine that watch horror, they don't they don't have nightmares, I, I don't think, anymore after watching these movies. I think they enjoy it. It's a more enjoyable experience. But um, it's an empirical question. I think uh, maybe you should collect, collect a sam- good sample size and study it. Yeah. Well, it, it is interesting. I think like- with sleep paralysis, though, there is something contagious about it. Um, every time I've I've shown that documentary, The Nightmare, to classes of either grad students or undergraduate students, a few of them will come to me and say, that night I had sleep paralysis for the first time ever. 
And the first oh. time I actually had sleep paralysis was after watching a sleep paralysis documentary. And that's the only time I've ever had in my life. And it was eight years after I started studying sleep paralysis. So I think there is an, um, an element of that. And there is uh, even a bit of bad anecdotal evidence, but there was a Roman writer who said that the nightmare was spreading through Rome and that like lots and lots of people were reporting having the nightmare being visited by demons, incubi, succubi. And it did seem to have a contagious element. You can imagine it's sort of burning burning through the beds of Rome. Yeah, but that's a bit like William Trotter's book on the herd mentality in World War One. It's that same kind of thing, isn't it? You know, people yeah. just kind of then, it's like satanic panic. Do you remember satanic panic? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, that's crazy. I, that was I, had, a, I had a relative who uh, brought uh, back uh, pamphlets and was trying to say, like, Dead Kennedy symbols and Black Flag symbols were satanic logos. And it's like, what? Have you listened to the lyrics? But you, you, but you, you talk to people about that that don't remember that, like younger people, and they're like, what? That's ridiculous. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. But even in my hometown, in the middle of Ireland, we were like, that family's a Satanist. They're doing this. That group, those teenagers are Satanists because they were this and do that. And we were terrified yeah. of people. Like, it was all over the place. It was in America. Sure. It's like, it's, uh -huh. oh, Canada, it's, UK. Yeah, it's just like a mind, place, a mind yeah. virus. Yeah, satanic panic. Yeah. We, we are very prone to moral panics. What was that species. movie with Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder on the Salem Witch Trials? Um Oh, uh, the crucible the crucible that's it yeah yeah that's a great movie on that that whole topic like yeah similar moral panic the salem yeah. village witch trials they actually had a sleep paralysis element um the first woman who was hanged bridget bridget bishop she had testimony um laid out on her in court by a guy named john lunder who claims that she came to him at night and held him until dawn and he couldn't move and she was mm -hmm. choking him for hours and hours and that was allowed in as legitimate spectral testimony because it was of a spirit because they believed that bridget bishop wasn't physically there she sent her evil spirit there to attack him that was admitted as testimony and used to convict and execute her this poor woman jesus that's, yeah. yeah that's absolutely <laughs> yeah Crazy. Brian, Brian, the other thing I wanted to ask you about as well, you alluded to at the start, exploding head syndrome, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What exactly is he exploding head syndrome? And is it anywhere related to like military or emergency services people as well? Um, For the latter question, I don't know. I haven't seen a trauma connection yet, but I haven't specifically looked at it. And there are even less people studying exploding head syndrome. But this is the experience of, again, you're in a sleep transition mm -hmm. state, either to or from sleep, and you hear a massively loud noise that sounds either external or inside your head. Yeah. Uh, gunshot. It's very, it's not like you're hearing symphonies. You're hearing a massive diffuse noise. Like one of the boom. best descriptions. Yeah. yeah, one of the best descriptions someone I interviewed said, it was like uh, those Looney Tunes cartoons where Wile E. Coyote yeah. dropped the piano and you hear that massively loud sound. 25% um, of people also have visual phenomena as well. They describe lightning or visual static. But again, you're not seeing faces. You're seeing just a few stuff. And what we think is going on there is um, there's a part of your brainstem called the reticular formation. And so what this does as you're going to sleep is it will inhibit your um, motor neurons, it'll inhibit your visual neurons. And what we think happens is instead of inhibiting your auditory neurons, it causes them to fire all at once. So you've got this massive blast of neural activity that's to your 
that is perceived to be a massively loud noise that doesn't exist. So you're, you're having a sleep-related hallucination going on that just sounds massively loud. And then you've got, in 25% of cases, this strange, massive visual disturbance of lightning flashing in front of you. And there are people that have this five to seven times every night. It's fairly um, uh, un uncommon, like about 15% of college students have had it at least once. So that's not super uncommon or common, but very few people, only two, per, almost, what is it? Yeah, 2.8% of those folks who have had it at least once have it to the point that it causes problems in their life. So it's much less of a problem than sleep paralysis is. But for some people, it could be crippling because you're going to bed and you just hear yeah. terrorist events going on. And any sort of causal factors in sort of sleep debt, like what we've been speaking about, sleep paralysis, alcohol, drug abuse, psychostimulants, anything like that related to yeah, it? Yeah, there, there have been precious few predictive studies. Uh, sleep sleep disturbances, it is correlated with sleep paralysis. So people that have it uh, are, are more likely to have um, exploding head syndrome as well. Um, and it can be treated with calcium channel blockers. There's uh, various anticonvulsants that can be used. Uh, frankly, just telling people, hey, there's this thing called exploding head syndrome. It's very benign. It's not associated with pain. Um, if it is associated with pain, you got to get to a doctor right away, though. Yeah. Because that could be something really bad, like a subarachnoid hemorrhage. But if it's real exploding head syndrome, it's just shocking. And, and it's, it might feel like pain, but it's really just, you're in shock from the, the magnitude of the sound you're hearing. Um, so again, kind of like sleep paralysis, if you have it just once or every once in a while, it's not a, a concerning thing, but some people can have it and there's no empirically supported treatments for them yet. So we're kind of, there are options, but not, there's been no RCTs, mm -hmm. randomized controlled trials for sleep paralysis or exploding head syndrome yet. Be very hard to do, wouldn't it? You're in the intervention group who are going to induce exploding head syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Stay still while I hit you with this hammer. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and that's the difficulty, isn't it, Brian? About this research, like you know, some people maybe listen to this going, yeah, "I get sleep paralysis," but I've been to a, um, a sleep physician a number of times. I've been in a lab mm -hmm. and they didn't pick it up, or you know, then it always happens when I'm never near the doctor and this kind of devil is doing something to me, and so on and so on. So, sort of getting any sort of objective measure of it is very difficult. Um, and this is similar probably to sexomnia as well, where people, you know, basically yeah. have sex at night without even knowing it. There's been um, cases of people violently masturbating as well to the point where they've actually, you know, inflicted injury on themselves. Oh, yeah. Um, and have no recollection of this whatsoever. So how do people, for anybody listening to this, to think maybe they might be having any of these type of disorders or issues, um, how would they go about, you know, getting some help or getting it diagnosed from your experience? Yeah, you don't actually need uh, like to go undergo a sleep study to be diagnosed with any of those things. And again, because of the uh, for most people, it's going to be such a low base rate frequency that it's going to be missed if you spend all the money having them mm -hmm. hooked up in uh, PSG. So you can do it clinically. Um, I developed clinical interviews for exploding head syndrome and for um, sleep paralysis. Go see a neurologist, a clinical psychologist, or a psychiatrist that's familiar with the class of disorders called parasomnias, which are the sleep disorders that this would be classed under. So find somebody like that, tell them about the experiences. You might have to do your own research um, to find people, but the good news is since COVID, a lot of people can practice across state lines and even country lines. Mm. So you have a better chance of being able to find somebody um, who will kind of take it seriously. And for any of these things, there are, there are treatment options. 
um, that in in small cases, which again is anecdotal evidence, we'd like a little bit firmer, has been shown to be effective. So for sleep paralysis, there are several medication options. There's two different psychotherapy options, one of which is in the appendix of that book you mentioned from 2015. And yeah, a five session treatment to uh, help you with your sleep paralysis. Um, just a couple more questions, Brian. Uh, one is that we've sure. seen over the last few years that exorcism um, has increased the rates of people, particularly in the US, calling for, and even worldwide, um, coming to the Catholic Church to be for exorcism. Mm-hmm. Do you think any way this is related to the poor sleep that people are having? We've seen since the 60s and 70s that people are getting less sleep, more disrupted sleep, there's more sleep problems, more sleep yeah. disorders, classically OSA, I, um, insomnia, and so on and so on. Do you think this RLS, poor sleep? Yeah, do, do, yeah. Do you think this poor sleep is related to this, or and um, to more sleep problems and sleep paralysis that people are having, which meant people think they're getting haunted, which is giving them this call for more exorcism? Yeah, I, I, I would guess it's not just one cause. I would guess there's a lot of causes. People are hungry for answers these days. Yeah, you know, the old answers don't seem to hold as much explanatory value as they used to. Nietzsche talked about this, right? This is the period of nihilism he foresaw when people wouldn't believe in religion anymore and science and philosophy weren't there to pick up the pieces in sufficient ways and people are searching for answers. Um, I I don't know what's responsible for that. Um, Probably also just the number of movies on exorcism and, uh, you know, you look at the Ed and Lorraine Warren movies, like The Conjuring, where oh, yeah, 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 yeah. these priests and lay religious experts are superheroes like the Avengers, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and they have all these powers to fight demons. So there's, I, I don't know, I'm sure there's something attractive about that. Um, and if people are suffering from strange things, they might make it more likely, or if they have um, mild um, psychotic symptoms. But you know, I don't have all the answers. It's possible. It's possible there could be demons in, interacting with humans. Is it probable? I, I'd probably say not. But I've seen a lot of harm come from exorcisms. There was a case not too far away where from where I live, where um, a woman believed that her children were were possessed and she ended up sticking a crucifix down their throat and killing them. So I was toying with the idea of writing a book called Exorcisms Are Bad. I haven't gotten around to doing it yet, but uh, you know, they, they're dangerous. I mean, some of the people um, who had undergone exorcisms went through some pretty horrendous physical things. Uh, they were, they, one of them died of starvation There's a guy getting a lot of airplay lately. Um, his name is, and I just looked up his name because I couldn't remember his full name, Vincent, Vincent Lampard. I don't know if you ever come across him. He's an American mm-hmm. priest, Father Vincent Lampard. He's been on lots of podcasts. Is um, he the one they made that uh, Russell Crowe movie about? Uh, Father who sh- did the exorcism. It was pretty, pretty decent movie. I'm not sure. This is, um, this is, if I can share screen, I was going to say it. Sure. Um, this is what he looks like. Where's the share screen button gone? Oh my god! It's changing buttons around. Hmm. This is terrible. Oh yeah, share screen. That big green button there again. Yeah. Yep. Idiot. Idiot. Oh no! No, yeah. I haven't. Yeah. He's been on a few different ones. He's been on this one. 
and I heard him on this one, and I heard him on yeah, this yeah. other one here as well. This okay points for Aquinas. Uh, yeah, might might be of interest to the listener watching yeah, yeah. see what you think. I'll send it's, you a link. It's anyway. interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there are a lot of smart smart people in the Catholic Church, you know. So uh, again, I I try to be humble. I'm a, I'm a skeptic, uh, but I, I try to be humble, and and I'm I'm not certain that I can explain everything. So. Yeah, I think well, I think that's the goal of a scientist is not to be locked yeah. in, is to be to be open and just yeah look for the yeah. evidence and just not come in with a preconceived idea. I think yeah. too many, and I think a lot of scientists actually do that. They go, no, it is this, and it's just that. It's like, well, no, we know it is, but we don't know that, so it could be. Yeah, and a lot of skeptics can become what what uh, you could call scoffics, where they just write people off and yeah, assume yeah. they're crazy. And yeah, I, I don't think that's a good way good way to yeah. do it. Yeah. I've, I've take people seriously and figure out what makes sense how could how could someone come to this conclusion is there a logical explanation yeah for it exactly Th and some first off think... don't assume they're crazy don't yeah. assume they're lying but yeah take them seriously see, see yeah. what you can figure out yeah the i've got one final case study for you brian okay i'm going to confess here to you right so 20 odd years ago i was uh traveling around south africa myself and my wife and um mm -hmm. At the time, she was my real wife. She wasn't being impersonated by anybody okay, else. Okay. My real wife at the time, right? And uh, we were traveling around, and we ended up uh, becoming somehow friendly with a, a gentleman in Swaziland who was mm -hmm. from a town called St. Lucia on the east coast, sort of northeast of South Africa. And he was from the Koala Zulu um, sort of tribe or mob, whatever the correct terminology is. And he said, when you come to St. Lucia, he says, I'll come and bring it to my village. And he says, I'll look after you. He says, like, don't worry about it. So this was like early 2000s. So we went along and when we first went in, obviously being white, a lot of people thought we may have been white South Africans, but he was telling people like, mm -hmm. you know, I was Irish and I was his friend yeah. and that was okay. And then that was sort of like the, the entrance in. <laughs> sure, sure. So we had this great day touring around his village, meeting his friends, his parents, and he went to a local school and whatever, drank a bit of pineapple cider, had a bit of a laugh. Nice. And then he said, do you want to go to a witch doctor? So uh -huh. I went to the witch doctor. She was about maybe 14 or 15 years of age. And she had this kind of bucket of what could be described as like shits and bits in this bucket, right? A pencil sharpener, you know, a few shells, okay. <laughs> a hairpin. I don't know what was it. Uh, anyway, I'd always be of a laugh. I just, yeah, let's, you know, went in Rome, as they say. And so I sat down and she, she didn't speak English. So he was interpreting for me. So she threw all the, the stuff on the ground. And she said to me, two things. She said, one is you have a sharp pain from your neck down into your back and this affects your body. You need to do something about it. And at the time I did. Hmm. Uh, 20 years later, I had to get my neck fused. You can see the scar here. Oh, wow. And it was right down exactly where she said. Hmm. Right. So that was kind of, that was kind of interesting. So I had to get it fused. Wow. And, yeah. So that was, that was weird. And uh, she described <laughs> all the symptoms I was having at the time. The second thing she said is at nighttime, uh, a woman comes to you and sexually abuses you at night. Mm. And uh, my wife was like, yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, and she was kind of like looking at her and whatever, and sort of explained it like, the, and so it's this kind of, you know, succubus, incubus type of thing that you were talking about. And so she made these, she made this kind of herbal powder and put into a little parcel. And she said, I had to shower myself in a, at nighttime for three nights and it would go away. Wow. So I did it mm -hmm. and I've never been visited by that again. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think about, and I, I love like the dabble in this kind of esoteric stuff. I love it. You know, uh -huh. I, I'm the type of guy that like, if I'm in 
you know, when I was in Hong Kong, I'll go and see a fortune teller, you know, if I, oh, sure. you know, I'll, I'll go and I'll go and play and have a, mm-hmm. have a bit of a laugh and see. And, um, but yeah, what do you make of that? Do you think it's like, just obviously well, we can't well, do an being RCT a clinical psychologist. Uh, I'm going to uh, answer <laughs> yeah, your right. question with a question. What do you think <laughs> is responsible for this? Uh, well, I, I believe in, I think, um, I think it was, I, d- I don't know. A part of me, the rational part of me goes, it's a placebo. It was someone acknowledging what you had. You decided in that moment that this wasn't going to happen again. Um, mm-hmm. It was a big change in my life. Like I I was in a transitionary stage, like moving out of Ireland. I'd been in the military for five years. Okay. Um, I was sort of basically just wandering around South Africa with my wife with two bags. That's all I had. I decided to like make this big jump and sort of go rogue for that six months. sounds and awesome rogue. to me. Yeah, which I... Which <laughs> Which I often think about doing now as well, <laughs> but uh, but I think I think it was like such a big transitionary period that it was probably just me cutting that sort of old world behind and and making that move. The other part of me is like what I was asking earlier on is like, do these things actually work? Is there is there some merit in this, or is it more this kind of um, psychological placebo? And you decide when you want to move on, which is like any sort of I think cognitive behavioral therapy as well as about you maybe drawing the line. So. I, I don't know, but I was just interested to, to, to see your yeah, reaction it, on that story because I've never told that story outside to anybody. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. everybody. Well, can it's an now. interesting story. Um, yeah. I can't think if I'd had if I've had something similar. Um, yeah, I think the placebo effect is a reasonable one. Another one is you know when you're away from your house when you're on vacation, all the old you're you're more likely to be able to learn new things. Yeah. Because all the old behavioral contingencies, they lose their power as you're in a new environment. That's why, you know, one of your friends might be really closed off and not want to go uh, swimming in the shark infested waters of Australia or not want to go bungee jumping or something. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. he will do it on vacation. Yeah, yeah He would yeah. never do it in yeah. Ireland, but bring yeah, it there. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe you were open to something with this uh, young oracle young African oracle that you weren't, wouldn't be open to under normal circumstances. I don't know. Maybe you got some new clandestine insights. I'm not sure, but the placebo effect is super powerful. And so is the nocebo effect, which is its evil twin. That's where uh, a thing that isn't harmful becomes harmful because you believe it's harmful. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where you can pick up, uh, you know, curses and, and voodoo, voodoo spells and things like that. So it's the opposite of placebo. And that's so also been implicated in the uh, um, sudden unexpected nocturnal death syndrome too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian, I could talk for hours and days with you. I, I feel like we, we you know, should be in one of those old style lounges with a couple of cigars and a, and a bottle of whiskey and we sit around till dawn and talk about all these all great right. things but I, I'm respectful In- Invite me time. to Australia I want to hang out <laughs> with your <Eremius. laughs> Well I can tell you you won't be sitting around in a lounge at the moment because the other day I was like it was like nearly 40 degrees Celsius which is well, over 100 or something so it's been quite warm yeah. so it's not it's maybe conducive to lying on the beach and and um, yeah smoking yeah. something else so um, It's a bit colder outside of DC I'll tell you that <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speak, speaking of your area of DC, talking about TV shows, another great show if people haven't seen it, which is a show just met down the road from DC in Baltimore, is The Wire. Yeah, brilliant show. Absolutely brilliant, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, fe- featured a few... Dark. Dark. Yeah, very dark, but but very interesting insight into um, not just society, but also potential interventions into drug use, which obviously goes on now with success in certain countries. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, the guy that's in it is uh, the guy that plays the main character, McNulty, is Dominic. 
don't think I can't even his last name, but he actually played Prince Charles in the in the version of the Crown on Netflix. And then you've also got the Irish actor in the. He was also in the, the Three Hundred. As well. Oh, that's right. He was in Three Hundred. Yeah, that's right. He was Played too. Yeah. Naughty boy. That's right. Yeah, and he was in some other movie, uh, a Roman one called Centurion. I think he was in that one. He played a general. Yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, he went to and then Bunky. Studied... My favorite character on the wires, Bunky. Gotta say. I like Bunky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that scene when he comes out of the bar and just pukes on the ground. <laughs> when you're at the, the way, I can come out of the Irish bar in Baltimore, he just vomits on the ground. It's just like, it's so realistic, like, of, of what would happen. Just drinking so what? much, just come out and puke. And then he goes, I'm going back in. He just comes out to he puke. He didn't even have drinking. any buck fast. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, and back in. It's hilarious. Yeah. There's also a few other Irish actors in that one. Um, that gentleman, um, no, I can't give his name, was in my head. Um, he was in Game of Thrones. Um, he was in he was in the Batman Dark Knight as well, in the opening scene. Hmm. Oh god. Oh no, that's terrible, isn't it? It's gone. Yeah. Aiden, I'm a replacement that doesn't have that memory. So. Aiden, Aiden, something. Um Anyway, some really good, some really good acting in, in in the wire. So if you haven't seen the wire, it's a good show, not a Christmas <laughs> show, but a good one to bit to binge on if you wanna if you wanna watch one. But if you're interested in more of Brian's work, he's got this great book, and I'll put all these links into the show notes. So you've got Sleep Paralysis: Historical, Psychological, and Medical Perspectives. This was published in 2015, sitting on my bookshelf here. And on the way is Monsters on the Couch: The Real Psychological Disorders Behind Your Favorite Horror Movies. In addition to that, if you pump Brian's name into PubMed. Um, which I'll put the link in, you will find uh, lots of papers here published by Brian on things like exploding head syndrome, um, uh, clinical guide to reincurrent, reoccurrent, recurrent isolated sleep paralysis. Could sleep paralysis be pleasant? There's many papers here that Brian has uh, published, so you can you can get a hold of those. But Brian, in addition to that, can people follow you on the, I was going to say Twitter, which is now called X, Instagram, LinkedIn, any other platforms where you, you know, uh, present information or can be contacted uh yeah you can contact me on twitter i also have a website that i put all i give a lot of public lectures all over the place i was on a book tour giving talks in england bulgaria all over the place um so www.briansharpless.com i also have two other books i could plug i have an yep. edited book called unusual and rare psychological disorders that goes through 21 different conditions including capgra and some other even stranger ones than that and then um, I have a book for a therapist called Psychodynamic Psychotherapy Techniques. Excellent. We will Actually, that's not the right title. What is the title? Psychodynamic Therapy Techniques. That's what it's called. <laughs> so, yeah, I just looking at it here on your website. Yeah. So you got four, four books up there. Yeah. Yep. And so, the only popular press one I ever did was Monsters on the Couch. The other are more academic-y, but the sleep paralysis one's pretty accessible. So I think if you like listen yeah, yeah, nerd that, out that, on stuff that's pretty accessible that was that was an easy read it wasn't heavy in terms of like you know academically you know written like it was it was well written but it wasn't like you know people aren't going to get confused by it they're not going to be getting yeah. into crazy jargon and stuff it was it was yeah. easy we'll put that in the show notes as well uh brian awesome. uh thank you very much for your time this morning really or saving for you really appreciate it and um yeah we, i'm sure we'll yeah, talk again it was fun uh, happy to come back sometime cheers 